Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Outsiders, Part 2, The First Irish Person in China. This episode was supposed to be focused on the incredible story of one of the most notorious post-war Nazis who ended up in Ireland, but the research for that show has spiralled out of control somewhat. It was supposed to take one week, but now it's running into its fourth as I've unearthed lots of new material. I've gotten access to some never-before-seen files and some of the contents are pretty sensational, so hopefully it will be worth the wait. This week I've opted for another outsider in Irish history, a person that's totally forgotten, but his achievements are remarkable. Those of you who have read my book, Witches, Spies and Stockholm Syndrome, Life in Medieval Ireland, will be familiar with this story. It's the remarkable account of the first known Irish person to visit China. Six centuries before men like Ernest Shackleton and Tom Crean became Ireland's most well-known explorers, This individual, known only as James of Ireland, travelled to China, mainly on foot. Thankfully, an Italian companion wrote an account of where they went and what they saw, so we have a detailed account of their journey. As you may be able to hear, I'm currently getting over the flu, so apologies if my voice is somewhat nasally. Finally, before we begin, I want to thank the patrons who have supported the show since I launched the Patreon campaign last year, which allows listeners like you to support the podcast on a monthly basis. It has made regular podcasting viable and I am so indebted to you all. If you want to become a patron and support the show, you will get lots of bonus content available exclusively to patrons. So go to patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast to find out more. Now, let's get on with the show. Wanderlust is as old as humankind. In Western society, at least, travelling the globe has almost become a rite of passage for many young adults. However, compared to any other generation... Contemporary travel in the 21st century is a somewhat sanitised experience and is made as easy and as luxurious as possible. Wherever you go, there are usually places to stay, such as hotels and B&Bs, and it is pretty difficult to get lost these days. 
the entire globe is almost perfectly mapped and most of us carry around devices in our pockets that can, if needs be, locate us to a specific point on a map. The actual process of travelling itself is also pretty comfortable and fast. When I was making this podcast, I looked up flights to the Chinese capital of Beijing from Dublin, and I was pretty surprised how quickly you can get there today. After a short journey to London, you can board a plane that will have you in Beijing in around 12 hours. However, these are all pretty recent innovations. Once we start to turn the clock back even a few decades, travel becomes more difficult, uncomfortable and slow. Prior to the invention of commercial airlines, moving from place to place took substantially longer. For example, a potential traveller to China in the 19th century had two options, sea travel or the overland route. Sea travel was nothing short of an ordeal. Before the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, a journey took up to five months. Ships had to travel around the Cape of Good Hope in southern Africa before crossing the Indian Ocean, then around Vietnam and finally north to China. The invention of steamships and the completion of the Suez Canal dramatically shortened the distance, but it still took months. There was, of course, the overland route for the more intrepid traveller. This was trickier. A route that travelled south through what was then the Ottoman Empire, Afghanistan, Pakistan and then over the Himalayas was dangerous given you had to travel through several volatile political regions along the route. In 1916 the Russians completed a northern route, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which connected Moscow to the Russian city of Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean. From Vladivostok a traveller could take the comparatively short connection of about 1500 kilometres to Beijing. This however was no joke. Even today the Moscow to Vladivostok train takes seven days. Daunting as some of these sound, they are all safe and luxurious ways to travel when compared to the journey of the first Irishman to visit China. Believe it or not, this man, known only to us as James of Ireland, left Europe in 1318, almost 700 years ago. He had no maps, did not know what lay ahead of him, could not speak many of the languages of the people he would meet along the way, yet somehow he not only travelled to China, but returned as well. This is all the more impressive considering only a handful of Europeans had successfully travelled to East Asia at this point. Now to fully understand this man's remarkable exploits, we need to look at who he was, why he left Europe, and the difficulties long-distance journeys in the Middle Ages imposed on travellers like him. The man who completed this amazing journey is an almost completely forgotten figure in Irish history. He's truly an outsider in that regard, but he deserves acknowledgement. He is a medieval version of the famed Irish explorers Ernest Shackleton or Tom Crean, but in many respects, what he achieved is far more impressive. His obscurity is in part because he lived over seven centuries ago, but also because he's a somewhat shadowy figure. Known only as Jacobus de Hibernia or James of Ireland, we only actually know of his existence from a passing mention in the public records of the Italian city of Udine. Given his name though, James was obviously born in Ireland and judging from the fact that he would travel to China in the 1320s, a journey that took considerable effort, we can assume he was probably born around the 1280s. It's doubtful if someone older than this could have embarked on such a mission in a world where the average life expectancy was around 40. 
At some point in his early years, James joined the Franciscans, an order of monks who had religious houses across the length and breadth of Europe, including Ireland. While medieval life was intensely local, with many rarely if ever travelling beyond their local region, the Franciscan order would undoubtedly have infused James of Ireland with an understanding and sense of the wider world. This was critical for what lay ahead. The very religious ideas he engaged with in the Franciscan order imbued him with knowledge of Europe and even places further afield. For example, while James was training to be a monk, he would have undoubtedly been acutely aware that the Pope was in residence in Avignon in France, that the spiritual centre of the Catholic Church in Europe was Rome, while many of the religious stories he learned contained references to the Holy Land in the Middle East. While by no means detailed, this would have created a sense of a wider world. While many Franciscans lived their lives in Franciscan friaries like those dotted across Ireland, preaching to the poor, a small number did travel great distances. James may well have met Franciscans who travelled far and wide and heard their accounts of far-flung places. For example, two contemporary Irish Franciscans were also intrepid explorers and travellers. Simon Fitzsimons and Hugo the Illuminator left the Franciscan friary in Clonmel and travelled all the way to the Holy Land. Leaving Ireland in October 1322, these two monks travelled by way of Paris. As we will see, travel at the time was incredibly slow and by the summer of 1323 they were still only travelling down the east coast of the Adriatic Sea through modern-day Croatia eventually reaching the vast Egyptian city of Alexandria in October that year. Their journey was finally completed in 1324. James of Ireland would undoubtedly have heard similar stories from other Franciscans who had travelled to the Holy Land. And indeed, within his order, there were those embarking on even greater journeys to lands completely unknown to 13th century Europeans. These were Franciscan missionaries and those chosen to act as envoys for the papacy. The main focus of these envoys and missionary work was the one that would draw James into his remarkable journey. That was the Mongol Empire. By the late 13th century, the Mongol Empire had become one of the largest in world history, covering much of Asia and it was increasingly becoming one of the top priorities for the papacy and by extension the Franciscan order, when it came to international diplomacy. The Mongols had been largely unknown in Europe until around the 1230s when a vast Mongol army, fresh from the conquests of Asia, pushed into Eastern Europe. By 1241, a huge Mongol host were poised to strike into the heart of Western Europe. However, this Mongol conquest of Europe did not come to pass. While his armies were about to push across the Danube River, the Mongol leader, Ogadai Khan, died. When news of his death reached the Mongol camps, they withdrew immediately from Europe to sort out his succession. However, these events had brought the power of the Mongols into the focus for the Christians of Europe. Compared to any European kingdom, their power and prestige was awe-inspiring and simultaneously terrifying. By the time James of Ireland was born, the Mongols' vast empire stretched from Beijing in the east to Kiev in Eastern Europe and the papacy had been using Franciscans to act as emissaries in the hope of converting the greatest power medieval Europe had ever seen to Christianity. Indeed, by the time James had become a Franciscan, several of his fellow friars had undertaken remarkable journeys. 
The first Franciscan to venture east to entreaty with the Mongols was John of Plano Carpini, who travelled to the court of the great Khan of Karakum in Mongolia in the 1240s. The hope that this Franciscan would convert the Mongol leaders to Christianity was rebuffed. However, Plano Carpini was followed by other Franciscans and in the 1250s William of Rubruck travelled east again hoping to convert the powerful Mongol Khans. The Pope, by this point, was dreaming up a harebrained scheme that if he could convert the Mongols to Christianity, he could get them to participate in a crusade against the Muslims of the Middle East. This came to nothing, but in the following decades, the power of the Mongols grew when they conquered most of China, establishing their court at the site of the modern city of Beijing. The Franciscan emissaries now focused their energies on China and by the end of the 13th century they were starting to enjoy modest successes and by the year 1300 Giovanni de Montecovino became the first bishop of Beijing. Thousands of miles away little did our man James of Ireland know he would soon follow Giovanni de Montecovino to the far side of the world in a journey that would take years. Before we look at James's journey in detail though we need to first gain a sense of just how slow travel was in the 14th century because no matter how slow you think it was it was almost certainly far far slower but first we'll take a quick break quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Travel in the Middle Ages was different in every way imaginable than it is today. It was uncomfortable, dangerous and filled with uncertainty. There were no maps to speak of. Long distance travel was heavily dependent on word of mouth and gaining local knowledge. I can give you one insight into just how slow journeys were from a series of documents that survive from one of the greatest emergencies that faced Ireland in the time of James of Ireland. This was the Scots invasion of 1315. The backstory to this invasion is covered in another podcast series I made called Fatal Feuds, available in the back catalogue, so I won't go into detail here. What's relevant to us is that Edward II, King of England and Ireland, resident in England, heard rumours that the Scots had invaded his lands in Ireland in early July. 
given the invasion had actually taken place on May the 26th of that year, this shows that the news had taken over one month to reach the royal court, the centre of power. This gives us some sense just of how slow travel could be. Given James of Ireland, the focus of this podcast was about to embark on a journey that was probably somewhere in the region of 16,000 kilometres. That gives you some sense of what he faced. This is hardly surprising, however, when we just look at how poor roads were. Roads, by and large, in the Middle Ages were no more than dirt tracks, often impassable in poor weather. An Irish Parliament in 1297 noted, The Royal Highway is now in many places so overgrown and blocked by thickness of quickly growing wood that scarcely anyone, even on foot, can pass through. When travellers weren't scrambling through bushes and forests, other people were always a potential risk. Nobody was safe on remote roads, and James would travel through many remote and isolated regions. James of Ireland's journey to China began in the year 1318 from Italy. How long James had been living in Italy or why he was chosen for the mission is unclear, but he joined another Franciscan, Odorico di Perdione, to travel on a religious mission to spread Christianity in China. His companion, Odorico, was an experienced traveller. He had travelled extensively in previous missions, having acted as an emissary for the Pope to the Mongols of Eastern Europe. However, even this prepared him little for what lay ahead of the two men. While Beijing lies around 8,000 kilometres east of Europe as the crow flies, these two Franciscans would take a route that would involve travelling a distance around twice as long as they snaked overland across Western Asia before taking a lengthy sea voyage. What they did was akin to space travel in the medieval world when we consider how they were completing this journey and that they were venturing through unknown territory. While James's own journey from Ireland to the starting point in Italy would have taken months and at times been perilous, his truly epic odyssey began when he and Odorico left Italy for Beijing. They began their travels on what were well-worn paths for Europeans. Leaving Italy, they made their way through the crumbling remains of the Byzantine Empire which had once covered most of Eastern Europe. Presumably passing through the great city of Constantinople, they left Europe crossing the Black Sea to the port of Trebizond in modern Turkey. Although far from familiar territory by this stage, in a land where language and culture undoubtedly seemed alien, they had scarcely taken the initial steps of what was a mammoth and epic journey. From Trebizond, they pushed on farther east to the city of Tabriz, which is located in the far north of modern-day Iran. There they turned south, embarking on an 1,800-kilometre trip, the full length of Iran, which eventually brought them to the port of Ormuz. Located at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, Ormuz looks out over the Arabian Sea. There the two Franciscans boarded ship and sailed across the Arabian Sea to India. It was here they hoped to meet what would have been familiar and friendly faces. Franciscans had set up a mission on the east coast of India. However, on arriving at the port of Thana, they were greeted by bad news. Their Franciscan brothers had been murdered in a religious dispute with the local Muslims. While the four Franciscans had been buried by a Dominican, Odorico insisted on exhuming their bodies and carrying them onwards until he could find somewhere to give them a proper burial. With this macabre cargo in tow, the two Franciscans continued their journey. Even though they had travelled far further than most Europeans of the day, they still hadn't reached the halfway point of their journey and although it is very difficult to date, 
they were already probably on the road for over two years. Undaunted, they continued by sea, rounding the south coast of India before crossing the Bay of Bengal towards Southeast Asia, passing by way of the Philippines, Java and Borneo, before they eventually arrived in the port of Guangzhou on the Pearl River in eastern China. This leg of the journey may have taken them another two years and they arrived in China sometime during or after 1323, around five years after they had left Europe. As I have said, dating the trip is very difficult given they themselves had no way to mark the passage of time. The port of Guangzhou can only have astounded the two Franciscans, not only in terms of size, but also the goods available. For example, something like ginger was extremely rare and a valuable commodity in Europe, but it was freely available in the markets of the city. However, while they had arrived in China at this point, Beijing, their ultimate destination, was still 2,000 kilometres away. So they continued their journey onwards towards Beijing. On this route north through China, they visited the first Franciscan friaries since they had left Europe proof that the work of previous missionaries had been somewhat successful. Here they buried the four Franciscans whose remains they had carried the thousands of miles from Thana in India. However, somewhat strangely, James of Ireland's travelling companion, Odorico, would keep the head of one, Thomas of Tolentino, and bring it all the way back to Europe. When they arrived in Beijing, they met the ailing and aged bishop, Giovanni de Montecorvino, who had been sent out by the papacy over 20 years earlier. The city of Beijing in the 14th century was a truly phenomenal settlement by European standards. For someone like James coming from Ireland, he would never have seen anything like it. The population stood at around 1 million people, substantially more than the entire population of medieval Ireland. Famed for its forbidden city, it was the capital of the Mongol Empire, ruled over by Bayantu Khan, the great-grandson of the famed Kublai Khan. James of Ireland and Odorico Perdinone preached in China for about three years in the mid-1320s before returning to Europe to seek more aid for the missionary project in East Asia. For me, this is one of the most incredible decisions they took. They spent more time travelling to China than they did there. However, they did not take the same route home. This time they tried the far shorter but potentially more dangerous route over land. Travelling west through China, they crossed into Tibet and may even have visited the famed capital of Lhasa, possibly becoming the first Europeans to do so and the last to enter the city before the arrival of Jesuits in 1624, nearly 300 years later. Odorico would later describe the Dalai Lama as a form of Pope. Their journey back to Europe was certainly shorter than their route out. They probably left China around 1328 and reached Europe in 1330. Understandably, their account of what they had endured and seen astounded people back in Europe. The two Franciscans had travelled more than any of their contemporaries and seen more than probably any European alive at the time. In the following year, Odorico's version of these events was transcribed by a fellow Franciscan, William of Salona, in Padua, Italy, and it became second only to the famous account of the merchant traveller Marco Polo as a source of information for East Asia. Unsurprisingly, however, the epic journey had taken a heavy toll and Odorico died the year after he returned to Europe. 
his native city of Udine left a substantial amount of money to his travelling companion, James of Ireland. Little is known about James afterwards. While Orderico would gain a certain amount of fame from his account of the journey which was transcribed, James was largely forgotten. Whether he returned to Ireland is unknown. His ultimate mission, which was to convert the Mongol Empire to Christianity, was also a failure. By the end of the 1330s, it was Islam that was making the greatest inroads. James of Ireland's story is truly that of an outsider, forgotten completely by history, even in his own country. Next up, I'll be looking at the story of Otto Skorzeny, one of the most notorious Nazis to come to Ireland after World War II. Hopefully, I will have the first instalment of Skorzeny's story out next week. Until next time, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 